today is the fifth week in a five-week series on Paul's letters to the early church leaders. And these are topics that just really needed to be circulated, either one amongst the leadership or two amongst all of the congregations to clear up some very prevailing misconceptions relative to theology. Uh, and today's lesson is really just all about how do we get out of here? What's the exit strategy, right? So what's, what, how do we leave? How does it end um, in any, if you think about the Olympics, in any Olympic event, there's a specific start time. There's specific rules. I learned gobs about archery yesterday. It was so cool. Anybody see the archery finals? I know, yes. Archery was, archery is awesome, yes. Thank you, Tim Archer. Yes. Um, yeah, you'll get that in a minute. It's okay. So I don't even know how far away these guys were. How far away are they from the target, Eric? Do you know? 78 yards. 78 yards. That's ridiculous. <laughs> if I was 10 yards away, I don't think I could do that. But 78 yards, and the guy's holding his bow, and his hand is not quivering or shaking. That was a, that was a good joke. It is not shaking at all. It is just rock steady. And they have rules. They have rules when they can start. They have rules... Uh, Relative to point systems, if you get closer, you get more points. The farther out, you get fewer points. Somebody got an eight, and the whole crowd went, ooh. And I'm thinking, he hit the target. That was awesome, right? It's fantastic. But they also have rules on deciding how things end, right? Every one of these events has a rule on how do we wrap this thing up, because they can't just go forever. Rio wants to start in four years, and you can't have people continuing to compete for four years. So today we're going to look at um, how do we wrap this thing up. When, when Jesus comes back, what does that look like, and what are the details? So the key thought, if you have your handout, is be ready. That's your first blank on the top of your handout. Be ready. And we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today. I saw that totally, and that was awesome, by the way. That was, yeah. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're starting verse 13 and go through chapter 5, verse 11. And I'm just going to read through the text, and then we'll kind of come back and talk about the details. So verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. So, if you had to have a theme for this, uh, wow, the whole layout of the room changed. That was cool. Um, if you had to have a theme for this text, what would it be that you just heard? What would it be? Hello? Be ready, right? Why? Why should we be ready? Why do we care about that? Yeah, you don't want to not be ready. That's, that's probably a good summary, right? It's a good theologically true statement. You don't want to not be ready because we don't know when he's coming back. So when's he coming back? When he comes back. Yeah. It probably will not be December 22nd of this year. Yeah, although uh, Gary told me a couple of weeks ago that that's the day Snooky is supposed to deliver her baby, so that could, in fact, be the end of the world. <laughs> and the fact that Gary told me that was overly troubling, but I'm just going to leave that one alone. So he has, some, he has the daughters. Okay, we'll give him that out, right? We'll give him that out. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And, and this was one of Paul's really uh, typical ways of saying, I think you're ignorant, and I'm going to help you out here. Because he says this several times. He tells this to the Romans a couple times. He tells this to the Corinthians several times. And then he uses this phrase, and this is the phrase that gets everybody all spun up about this passage. It says, concerning those who have fallen asleep. So literally, what the word means is sleep. That's literally what the word means. Okay? And metaphorically, it means dead. All right. Literally, it means sleep. Metaphorically, it means dead. So concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring or lead those with him who sleep in Jesus. So one of the ways, um, one of the ways that we really goof up Bible study as English-speaking people is that we will find a word in the English version of the Bible, and we will go, I want to do a Bible study on that word. And you're like, well, that's great, but it's completely backward. Completely backward. Because the New Testament was written in English, right? Yeah, right? No, it was written in Greek. So if we do a Bible study of a translation, we're getting a Bible study of the translator's opinion of what that word meant, not what the word originally was. So if you want to do a Bible study, a real Bible study, and I I don't want to discount these wonderful Bible studies that you can pick up at Lifeway. Some of them are great. But if you want to do a real Bible study on a word in the Bible, go back and find the Greek or find the Hebrew and find out where that word is used all throughout Scripture because that is the word that God intended to be used. Is everybody understanding? You tracking with me? Okay. So on your page, you see the obviously dead, obviously sleep, and probably dead. And I kind of feel like Billy Crystal in... uh, Yes, it's just kind of mostly dead, right? And if you get some chocolate-covered pill, then you'll be okay, and the chocolate helps it go down and all that, yes. So the Princess Bride. So there's several passages where it is obviously used of sleep. And, and Jesus was kind of the chief, I don't want to say perpetrator of this, but he, he did this a lot. He would use a word, and he would intentionally use a word to lead the listeners down this path and he really meant this totally other path. Uh, several times in the New Testament, 
uh, the disciples would come up to him after he had taught, and, he, and they would go, please explain to us what in the world you were just talking about, because we didn't get it. And he would say something to the effect of, yeah, that was on purpose. And you kind of go, well, that's not very Jesus-like, because that, that kind of sounds like a smart aleck. But, but he would do this on purpose because not everybody was supposed to understand everything at the same time. So when we see Paul do this as well, use this word that, well, does it mean sleep or does it mean dead? Well, there's a couple ways to look at this. You can go back and you look at all the times that word shows up. So there's several that mean obviously sleep. There's several that mean obviously dead. And then I have this column there, probably dead. And this is Jim's opinion. And if you want to put in parentheses Jim's opinion, that's fine. Um, but it fits the passage of the text. It's very consistent theologically. Uh, and it doesn't make the text go, because you've probably read a passage of Scripture, and you kind of get to it, and you go, that can't mean what I think it means, because if that means what I think it means, then this breaks all of, yeah, that just doesn't work. Does this make sense? Yes? You're kind of staring at me a little fuzzy this morning. Okay, good. So, let's look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain... So what do you think the word remain means? Alive. We're still here, not dead, right? Yeah. Um, there was a, one of the commentators that I loved. He told a joke about this. He said, obviously, Paul was alive when he wrote this. I was like, that is awesome. Been reading this guy for like 15 years. I've never seen him make a joke before. He's been dead 150 years. So it's kind of cool. Random theology humor there. You can laugh or not. It's okay. Um, so I think the text very, very clearly demonstrates that this word sleep is talking about being dead. There is precedence in the New Testament for it talking about being sleeping. There is precedence in the New Testament for it talking about being dead. It fits the text if we're talking about dead. Paul used this word on purpose because that's what the, the word the Holy Spirit told him to use. Um, so it, it is what it is. Now, how many of you know what the word cemetery means? You're like, Jim, that was a pretty hard left turn, right? Yeah. What does the word cemetery mean? Anybody know? A place of sleep. A place of sleep. The Greek is a komaterion. A place of sleep. So we say this constantly nowadays. We refer to this place of sleep as obviously they are not taking a nap, right? My grandfather died several months ago. He is not taking a nap, right? His body is decaying right now. That's the way this whole thing is set up to work, and that's the end of, of our bodies, right? That, that's for a certain period of time. So look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So why would Paul feel the need to say this to a group of believers? Absolutely. There was thought, theology going around at the time that was contrary. Much of the New Testament that we have is because, and I love this, the New Testament believers messed it up. Right? They took what the apostles told them, and then they fumbled the ball. And they got it all twisted and tied and wrapped around the axle, and they needed somebody to come up and go, no, this is how this works. So anybody know where 1 Thessalonians is in the canon of Scripture? Canon is the, the holy writings of Scripture. If you put them in an order of a timeline, 
where is it in the New Testament canon as far as when it was written? Does anybody know? First Thessalonians. Anybody know? Is your before Second Thessalonians? <laughs> yes, it was. That's awesome. I thought it was an easy answer, right? But nobody just kind of got it. Like, what year? Yeah. We've got to vote for 72 AD. Many of you have study Bibles. The beginning of 1 Thessalonians perhaps could be a good place to look for this answer. I'm going to wait on you. Yes, I am. <laughs> Zeke's, Zeke's answer is between zero. There actually wasn't a year zero, but that's okay. Uh, and 2012, which I think is a pretty safe bet, right? 51 A.D., anybody, anybody have in there? It was among Paul's first writings, one of the very first letters that he wrote. Um, so 51 A.D., you're less than 20 years after Jesus has died, and this is, this is really new. Christianity is very, very new still, okay? This, this guy, Jesus, has... We've only known about Jesus for 20 years, right? Because the first 30 years of his life were very, very obscure. Very few people knew about him. So by 30 A.D.-ish, 52, that'll work. Thank you, Google, yes. Uh, early 50s. Most, yes, because Google is always right, theologically speaking, right? Yeah. Yeah, you got to check Wikipedia, too, because Wikipedia is run by a bunch of liberals. So the, uh, theologically speaking, it can get a little iffy. Structure-wise, it's a great place to go, but... Um, you, if, so if you don't believe me, read the Wikipedia article on the Bible. If you read the whole thing, tell me if you don't think it's written by a bunch of liberals. It is, trust me. Rabbit trail. Okay, so back to 1 Thessalonians. Early, early, early writings of Paul. So in 20 years, they had managed to get themselves wrapped around the axle on what happened to Edna. Edna died like six years ago. Where is she at? I'm, I'm, I'm in oh my goodness, what are we going to do, right? She has died. Jesus has not yet come back. Thessalonians is also the, the book of the Bible where Paul wrote to him and said, you have to work. You can't sit staring at the sky all day long waiting on Jesus to come back, which I think is a fantastic, a fantastic compliment to them, encouraging them that, yes, he is coming back, and that's where he's going to be coming back from. But you can't waste your life staring at the sky all day long going, not today. So they would not go to work, right? They would not go to work. They would sit on a hillside and stare at the sky and wonder why they were hungry at the end of the day. This is a problem. Christians were going to be, become known for being lazy. This is not a good thing. So this initial instruction is around how to work and when Jesus is going to come back and, and giving them some peace and some comfort around all of these events. So they had some bad theology, and Paul writes them a letter. Hence the New Testament. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So somebody go to Exodus 19.16, and somebody go to Psalm 47.5. Exodus 19.16 and Psalm 47.5. Who's got Exodus 19.16? Pretty easy to find. Genesis, Exodus. You may have to go to the index for that one. <coughs> Who's got it? Got it. Right here in the front. Go for it. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. 
cloud of the, on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp were trembled. So this is Moses going up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He's up on the mountain. He's been up there for three days, and all of a sudden, thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet. Oh, okay. So sometimes when God shows up, there's a trumpet sound. Psalm 47.5, who's got it? Oh, no, 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 no. It's alive. It is the word of God. It is, it is powerful. I'm not going to let you read it like that. Okay, Bobby, let's do it again. I love you, man. I love you, man. Here we go. Amen, there we go. Among the sound of trumpets. So when God shows up, it sounds like trumpets. And you're like, well, that explains a whole lot of battles in the Old Testament, right? It explains this whole concept of Gideon, right? This, this battle where Gideon, God tells him to bring not a sword, but a bunch of trumpets. Because that's what God sounds like when God comes to battle, when God shows up. So one of the neat things, and I, and I don't know if the trumpeters are playing this morning. Does anybody know Are the trumpeters playing this morning in the band? Do we know? Should be. One of the things that I love, uh, I heard an old, 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 old guy. He was like 85, and I was probably seven. Uh, in a tent revival uh, in Shelbyville, he came and he preached to us, and he said, uh, there's an angel in heaven right now licking his lips. And I said, that's weird. <laughs> then he reached into his bag, and he pulled out a trumpet. This is this old, I mean, like, crusty face, the whole nine yards. And he puts the trumpet up to his lips and he goes, watch me. And then he blew. Because that's the last thing you do before you blow the trumpet. Now, the Bible talks about that the angels in heaven don't know the day or the time, right? So, so one of them's just on standby, right? He's just kind of looking like, are, are we ready? Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we ready? That's his job. How cool a job would that be, right? You're like, chapped lips, right? That's what that would be, right? Get the man some Carmex. But, um, but yeah, there's an angel in heaven licking his lips right now because we don't know. So if the angels who were created before us and have been around God before us and have had much more intimate, direct relationships with God before us don't know, quit guessing, Right? This is really, really foolish to guess when Jesus is going to come back. I don't know when he's going to come back. He's going to come back when he comes back. And it'll be the right time. Amen? All right. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. So I'm going to read you a bit of a commentary here. In the ancient Greek, the phrase to meet was used as a technical term to describe the official welcoming of honored guests. This passage, this 1 Thessalonians 4 passage, is the basis for the New Testament doctrine of the rapture, the catching away of the believers to be with Jesus. Now, the word rapture is not in the ancient Greek text, here's your blank, but comes from the Latin vulgate, V-U-L-G-A-T-E. You go, Jim, that's kind of, that sounds technical. It is technical, yes. So, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Old Testament was originally written in and... Aramaic, yes, there's little sections of Daniel and some other stuff in there. Um, but they were both translated into Latin. Latin was the educated language of the day for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, 
And the Latin Vulgate, the word for this phrase was rapture, rapturous. Okay? So from that Latin text, we get the concept of the rapture. Now, so, is, so my question is, is the rapture in the Bible? Yes. The concept is right there. Is the word in the Bible? No. Same thing as the Trinity. Is the word Trinity in the Bible? No. Is the concept all over the place? I mean, you, got, you have to do theological gymnastics to get around the concept of the Trinity. It's just really challenging. So I'm going to continue here, and I don't think this is in your text. Paul's statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is both dramatic and fantastic. He speaks of Christians flying upward, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We wouldn't believe this unless the Bible told us it were so, not any more that we would believe that God became a baby, that he did miracles, and that he died on the cross, and he lives in us. It's ridiculous, right? It's absolutely ridiculous to think that stuff's going to come shooting up out of the ground and stuff's gonna, we're going to go be gone. That's totally ludicrous. Would you not agree? Except the Bible says it, so cool. <laughs> Works out well for us. It works out really well for us. So to meet who? To be with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always. Guess what the Greek means? At all times, always, forever and ever and ever. Randy Travis, amen, right? (laughs) Forever to be with the Lord. So, and and this is the greatest reward of heaven, right? To be with Jesus. Because it's great that it's a perfect environment. It's great that the angels are there. It's great that your family members that you miss will be there. It's great that uh, there's a street of gold. It's great that all this other stuff. But that's junk if Jesus is not there. It is absolutely junk if Jesus is not there. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. And that's it. That's why it's heaven. That's why it's fantastic. That's why it's beyond anything we could ever imagine, because Jesus is there. So verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. The Greek is parakaleo. It means to exhort. And you guys have seen me do this over and over and over and over again, and I'm going to keep on doing it. Adam, come here for a second, bud. It's easy. You don't have to say anything this time, okay? I'm not going to ask you to spell Lego or anything, all right? Love you, Justin. So to exhort is to put your arm around somebody and you go, I love you, man, and, and this is something that I know that can help you. What would you do? No, I'm not kissing you. That's, that's Barry. I ain't kissing you. I'll come over. You're next. Wow. I'm, I'm going to teach from over there in a minute, isn't it? But the idea is that there will be times that we go through in our lives where we know something that another believer needs to know, right? And, and we're, we're going to have to have a pre-existing relationship because if I didn't know you, Adam, and I came up and did that to you, I wouldn't have gotten that close, would I? Uh, freaked out. Yeah, it freaked out a little, right? <laughs> right? But I know him. We have a pre-existing relationship, and I can put my arm around him and tell him I love him <coughs> and tell him something that he needs to know, and that's a whole different environment so we can comfort we can exhort one another with these words because death is going to happen right it's going to happen we're either going to die or relatives are going to die or somebody that we love is going to die or somebody in this room is going to die but death is going to happen and we have to be equipped when that happens and this is the thing that we're equipped with 
this knowledge that Jesus will make it right. And that's awesome. And, and, and that is, I don't know what more comfort you want, but that's amazing stuff. So, chapter 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, this being something that's a bit outside my experience, uh, I went to the, um, the resource in my home that is the expert on labor pains. Thank you, Julie. Uh, and she is included for the first time in this 100-week series, and I think for the first time in all of my teaching career as a uh, commentary in my teacher notes. <laughs> so here it is. I asked her about this last night. She said, uh, you know they're coming, but you're not prepared for the amount of pain until you have experienced it. And all the women said, Amen. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and this was the thing, and, and I'll be... I'll be very, very honest with you. I, I'm a math guy, right? So I, I look for patterns and routine and, and, and all this and everything. It's ridiculous. And I'm watching this little monitor, right? I'm holding her hand and counting. They never told me what to count to, so I just kept counting. It was ridiculous. And I'm holding her hand, and I'm counting. I'm going, in three, two, one, yep. And every time, she'd look surprised. And I'm thinking, it's going to happen here, and it's going to happen here. And she's, I didn't get it, right? But it hurts so bad, right? Yes. She's like, yes, it does, okay? <laughs> Pains upon a pregnant woman, and here are some, the five of the saddest words in Scripture. And they shall not escape. Um, there is, the Greek literally says there's no place to flee to safety. There is no safe place. Um, How many of you have ever seen the movie Taken? Holy cow. It's like the most popular movie I've ever asked about. Good gracious. It's like, what's up with this? Um, I saw it for the first time a couple weeks ago. And let's just say Anna Grace will never be allowed to travel outside of Hamilton County again. All right. Oh, my goodness. That is just, that was, I'm no Liam Neeson, right. Yeah, that's right. But I know I am personal friends with the commander of the Chattanooga SWAT team, and he will go after them. That will not be a problem. Okay? So here's the line from Liam Neeson's character when he, he's on the phone. His daughter's just been taken, and, it, and he's on the phone. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you that I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. And if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. And the bad guy says, good luck. And in my opinion, that is the perfect example for how many people live their lives today. God has said in his word, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to love you. I want to do life together with you. And I'm coming back one day. And if I'm not in relationship with you, if we are not doing life together, then this will be a real problem for you. And many people look at this message of love and hope and peace and faith and say, 
good luck. I don't believe it. And it's incredibly, incredibly sad. And what will happen? Here is what will happen. There will be no place of safety. It is scary. It is scary in its thoroughness. There is no place of safety. So when 9-11 hit, what was something that happened to the President of the United States? He was taken to where? Air Force One, to a place of safety in the sky. What happened to the Vice President? He was taken to another place, right? He was taken underground to a bunker. If you've ever seen his testimony on this, he says, they came in and they got me, and my feet didn't touch the ground until I was in a vehicle. Because the Secret Service boys are big boys. And, they, and, and, it, and the vice president at that time was no small man. Okay? <laughs> they picked him up and they brought him to a place of safety. And all the resources of the United States of America were brought to bear to protect certain people so that they were safe. And I am telling you that if those men and women in leadership in the United States of America are not believers when Jesus comes back, there is no place of safety. There is no airplane they can fly in. There is no bunker they can live in that will keep them from this event. This should motivate us. This should encourage us and instigate us to act and to work and to tell others about Jesus. Amen? All right. Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Literally, it means darkness. Metaphorically, it means on the devil's side. Right? You're not on the devil's side. Because if you're in the church that Paul's writing to, you're probably not on the devil's side. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light or on God's side. There are two sides here. There are only two sides. And sons of the day, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. This is a different Greek word than the word used earlier. This is a word that's only used for sleep. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. You remember this when you were a uh, uh, middle school, high school, maybe college student? That certain activities took place at night that did not take place in the day? Yeah? And many of us regret those activities, right? Because they got us in trouble later on? Yep. Um, This is what he's talking about here. Verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, this agape love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. It's It's a strange way to say that. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Let me give you a different translation. For we had an appointment with wrath, and now we have an appointment with love. Okay? Uh, We're going to do a study in 2013 on salvation, and one of the weeks that we're going to look at is this concept called propitiation. One of my favorite theological words. I love it. Propitiation. Because you say it, and everybody's like, oh, I think I should know what that is, and I have no clue what that is. Right? Yeah. So you kind of get this half smile, like, yeah, okay, don't ask me what that is, Jim. Um, it, this is the, the anger that God has about sin and the appeasement of that anger. So if you've ever had a parent that was really angry at you or if you've ever had a child that you were really angry at <clears throat> this morning um, because they did something, 
right? It's whatever it was that made that anger go away. Right? And sometimes it's, Daddy, I'm sorry. I love you. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, yep, yeah, that's enough today. Cool. All right. And the cool thing about God is that there's only one thing that makes that anger go away, and that's the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was done on our behalf. And when we accept that, he sees Jesus and not us, and he is no longer angry with us, and now we don't have to go to hell. That's kind of awesome, right? It's fantastic. So now God is not angry at you. So if you wonder, so what does it look like when God is angry? Well, there's big chunks of the Old Testament, right? Where he hits the smite button on lots of people, and it's just not good. Um, I don't know how else to say it, right? It's just, that's what it is. Propitiation is a beautiful thing when it's finished. Before it happens, it's awful. It's as awful as it gets. So we had an appointment to wrath. Not an appointment to wrath. We had an appointment to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, there's a, a phrase in one of my commentaries. It's not really a commentary. It's more of a, uh, a resource. He said, uh, this is the, the tense. It's, uh, let me find it. Here we go. It's the first aorist, active, subjunctive, constitutive aorist. Did you like that? And everybody said, huh? <laughs> right. Um, I sent that to a couple people that I thought would get a kick out of it last night, and, and one of them was Brian Smith, and he said, so how are you going to apply that tomorrow? And I sent him back, and here's the blank. Uh, Jesus is coming back for me, and it will be good for me forever. Because the aorist means irrespective of time. The subjunctive is the future hope of something going to happen. And there's a couple other words that I'm not really sure about, but it's going to be good for me forever. Right? Forever it will be good to me. Verse 11, Therefore comfort one another and edify or build up one another just as you are also doing. And I love this line from Adam Clark. He says, Rest assured that in all times and circumstances it shall be well with the righteous. Let every man lay this to heart, and with this consideration comfort and edify each other in all trials and difficulties. It shall be well with the righteous. If your relationship with God is where it's supposed to be, you're in good shape. You are in good shape. You may have had the worst week last week ever. But if your relationship with God is where it's supposed to be, you're in good shape. You may be about to have the worst week that you can even possibly imagine this week. And if your relationship with God is where it's supposed to be, you're in good shape. You know why? Because it will be good for us forever. And that is a lot of hope. That is a lot of comfort. So what's the point? Number one, Jesus is coming back. If you missed that in the lesson, I'm terribly sorry. Jesus is coming back. All right? Number two, we will experience death. Whether it be friends, relatives, loved ones, or our own physical death. Um, and then number three, death can be a good thing. And this sounds kind of harsh, but if, if that is what it takes to bring someone to confrontation with their own mortality so that they evaluate the fact that I'm going to live forever someday, somewhere, either in heaven or hell, then that's a good thing. We need to be confronted with that reality. So what do I do with that? Well, number one, be ready. Number two, comfort and edify. Uh, and then number three, help others to be ready. Help others to be ready. Comfort, edify, tell people. I, I don't want this to be the full expanse of people that are impacted by Stewart Heights Baptist Church, those that are members today. I, I want a lot more. 
I want churches around the world to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow because we need more people to be ready 